Welcome to Airway Breathing Conversation, a podcast presented by the anesthesiology residents at the University of Saskatchewan, created to provide individuals of all levels of medical knowledge with anesthesiology-related healthcare information. This episode is part of our abridged Grand Round series, in which highly knowledgeable and sought-after guest speakers present on a multitude of fascinating topics relevant to anesthesia. Join us for Grand Rounds this week, where Dr. Anita Rao, an anesthesiologist at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga, Ontario, presents on the impact of the OR on the environment. Now, whether you are an anesthesiologist, resident, medical student, or member of the general public, come listen in as we demystify the incredible specialty that is anesthesiology, one episode at a time. So I'd like to start with a uh, land acknowledgement. Um, both Melissa and I are in uh, the city of Toronto, and I acknowledge that we are on the um, land that is the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Wendat peoples, the Chippewa, and um, the Haudenosaunee. We are on the traditional territories of many Inuit, Métis, and um, First Nations people who currently live here. We are also covered under Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit and the Williams Treaties, which is between many uh, uh, bands of the Mississaugas as well as the Chippewas. So our learning objectives today are to really understand the evidence and the guidelines about greening the OR, and these come from the Canadian Anesthesia Society, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, and the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists Environmental Guidelines. And I want to give some practical ideas and ways to implement, um, but first to be able to look for opportunities in the OR, <clears throat> excuse me, that lend to greening interventions. And we can also um, uh, look to try and develop an approach to gating leadership on sustainability efforts and benchmarking. Really, without engaging leadership, it's hard to overcome certain barriers, such as workflow changes, cost, and engaging other stakeholders. Most environmental implementations can also um, use a QI framework with data input and output, and these are great projects for residents. <laughs> So just to give some background, and I'm sure almost everyone on this call will have heard this and know this, that climate change is the single biggest threat facing humanity. The World Health Organization um, has declared this and has made a push to actually uh, for to galvanize uh, the world community to help for climate change because it really is an existential crisis for, for all of us. What may be less obvious is that the delivery of healthcare itself creates pollutants and carbon emissions. If the global health sector were a country, it'd be the fifth largest greenhouse gas emitter on the planet. Healthcare in Canada is responsible for about 5% of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions. So we're not the biggest, but we're also not the smallest industry. This is on par with several countries, uh, high resource countries in the world. This is a graph many of you may have seen, and this is just for all carbon emissions of where the world is right now. This red line indicates where we need to be to keep average global temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. Right now, we are nowhere near that. We are on track to hit 2.5 to 2.9, which will make large parts of the planet uninhabitable, especially in the global south. There's a BBC News article that came out yesterday that 2023, the average temperature was 1.5 degrees Celsius. So we're already there. Now, there is a little bit of a complication with El Nino. So that is will not be the average temperature for several more years, but we are getting very close. We currently need a 50% reduction in global CO2 today in order to hit that 1.5. 
So that's where the world is. So where is Canada? This is a graph from 2022, um, so a little bit old, but per capita greenhouse gas emissions. So per person, how much do we emit? And I think a lot of us think that probably we're not doing so badly in Canada. Well, in fact, we're the second worst in the world, um, beat only by Saudi Arabia. And we emit 24.5 tons of CO2 per person. For me, it's very hard to understand what those numbers mean relatively. So the global average is 7.5. So we're about three times the global average. The global average is hit by countries like the UK and Germany. So these are countries, high resource countries, where they enjoy a very good standard of living. So I often get asked the question, we're a small country with few people. Why does it matter that we really alter our life? style? Isn't it coal, coal um, grids in many other parts of the world and uh, development, concrete um, building? And really, our 30 million people behave more like 200 million people in India. So we do have a responsibility to do something about our own carbon emissions in this country. So that's just total carbon emissions per capita. What about healthcare carbon emissions by country? So we are in the top emitters in the world, along with um, Australia and the United States and Switzerland, um, which is a little bit of an outlier for the EU. Um, so compared to other countries, though, that have very good health systems, we emit one quarter to one half. Sorry, they emit one quarter to one half as much as we do. So we can see that um, in countries that are point two eight, so about one quarter to one half ton per capita, we see Sweden, Spain, France, countries that have very good health systems. And so while we may say, well, maybe that's because we actually use a lot of resources to keep our population healthier and, and, and able to live a more productive life. So this is a really interesting graph. It's about healthcare emissions versus life expectancy. So we have healthcare emissions on the x-axis, life expectancy on the y-axis, and really next to the states, we're not in a very good place. High emissions, but a lower life expectancy than many people in the EU, certainly lower than Japan and South Korea. So really our increased carbon emissions are not leading to better care. So that's just the background to discuss that really our clinical obligation as healthcare providers is to keep patients healthy and to maintain health by the surgeries we provide. But while we're treating individual patients, we actually create pollutants that harm the health of all our populations. The World Health Organization has stressed that health systems are already fragile in much of the world and climate-induced injury only burdens them more. So really, I would say that it is part of our professional practice to take care of an environmental impact of what we do. So that brings me to sustainability in the operating room and where we are one of the major stakeholders. And the guidelines, like I've said, from the ASA, the Canadian Anesthesia Society, has come up with very bold environmental guidelines in their guidelines to the practice of anesthesia 2023. In the National Health um, Service in the UK, which has made a commitment to become net zero by um, 2040. So um, why is the OR a high impact area? One fifth to one third of all hospital waste is generated in the OR. So we have a very small footprint compared to inpatient, outpatient food services, facilities, um, physiotherapy, rehab, so many other parts of the hospital, but we have a disproportionate production of hospital waste. And we see that with all the disposables we use, disposable gowns, drapes, equipment. We use a lot of energy and that's because, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me, our HVAC is very intensive. We have to have a lot of air exchanges. And also our volatile anesthetic gases are actually uh, greenhouse gases. I think we all know that. And they produce 5% of all hospital CO2 emissions. And when you think of how many people have an anesthetic compared to how many people come through a hospital um, per year, that's quite a bit. The other thing is surgical services resources are increasing. <clears throat> so our waste and emissions are actually increasing. 
This is a um, artist rendition on this right-hand side of a peach tree. It's kind of a low-hanging fruit tree. And it really talks about what are the easiest in, um, uh, in, in terms of um, uh, decreased cost to implement, as well as return on greenhouse gas investments or savings. So um, the riper the fruit, the bigger greenhouse gas um, savings from a greening implementation, and the higher the the um, uh, size of the fruit is actually your financial return on investment. So the higher up on the tree, the harder to do. The lower on the tree, the easier it's to do. We see a lot of the low hanging fruit in an entire health system for greening a health system is in the OR. So we have like reduced desflurane, um, OR ventilation setbacks, which I'll briefly describe, reusable sharps containers, reusable gowns. So the pillars of OR sustainability are not necessarily in this order, but because we're all anesthesiologists, we'll talk about anesthetic gases, waste management, and just for the interest of time, um, I'm not gonna to speak too much about energy management. I'm more than happy to uh, discuss OR HVAC setbacks, or it's, you can email me about them. It is something that requires uh, a lot of um, stakeholders and uh, investment with facilities, a little bit harder for clinicians to actually implement, but certainly not impossible. So I know most of you have heard of this already, so I'm gonna go through this very quickly. Um, so anesthetic gases uh, are the primary source of OR emissions. They're all hydrofluorocarbons that are greenhouse gases, magnitudes worse than CO2. We all know desflurane is the worst with a global warming potential about 20 times more than sevoflurane, but because of its potency, really it's about 50 times worse per patient. Many will, of you will have seen this graph from Dr. Hannah and Bryson. Um, sevoflurane, now these are approximate. These are using global warming potential as a, um, as a tool to discuss uh, greenhouse gas warming and radiative forces, but SIVO significantly worse than desflurane um, in, in terms of use per hour. So desflurane elimination, I would say is really a low hanging fruit. And one of the reasons for that is there's really, we're really the only stakeholders. I mean, there's a little bit of pharmacy procurement, but they're happy to take off anything that is not necessary. Several best practice guidelines, most importantly, the Canadian Anesthesia Society 2023 in their CGA guidelines to the, to the practice of anesthesia has asked to eliminate or restrict desflurane. And it's really a good first step to greening the OR and galvanizing clinical staff because it's measurable. Your greenhouse gas emissions can be shown, reductions can be shown to staff and to leadership and to say, we can do this, let's work on some of the harder stuff. Some of the barriers to desflurane, perceptions of superiority for certain patient populations, ambulatory and bariatrics. And really one of the things that comes up frequently before we got rid of it, um, at uh, our hospital was a concern for pharmaceutical shortages. Now there are many, many um, now generics for both SIBO and desflurane, and they're made in many different places around the world. So it's unlikely that that's a barrier, that should be a barrier for now. And it's not, um, especially as desflurane is being banned in several places like Scotland, currently the EU in 2026, that will be um, a non-issue. So this is a uh, RCT um, the, on the, uh, just for ambulatory surgery to show that multiple studies show there's no significance in discharge, significant difference in discharge from the PACU with desflurane and sevoflurane anesthesia. And um, this is really addressing the issue that there's a faster wake up with desflurane. So this was from relatively recent BJA um, editorial in 2020, along with this meta-analysis. So what about bariatrics, DES versus CIRAPVO? This was an area that was thought that where desflurane really would, because of its low solubility, have a, a uh, have a um, advantage over sevoflurane. So I'm just going to show a couple of positive studies. This is a very old study from 2004, and it talked about early um, 
early PACU criteria, things like eye-opening and extubation and um, Altrady score. And so the, the results of this were that the modified Altrady score was higher in admission to PACU. So when they first came in, but not at discharge, and there was no increased complications from that. I will note that this was published in Cision in Algesia, but support was received from Baxter. The other more important thing is there was no tapering of the sevoflurane. So when they have to do the study, they have to turn it off, turn off the volatile at some um, at some measurable uh, time, and they did that at wound closure, which I don't think really replicates uh, practice. This is the same um, in obese patients, and these are parameters and time to leave the operating rooms about two and a half to three minutes earlier with. Um, desflurane and sevoflurane. But if, again, there was no tapering at wound closure. There's no difference, again, in PACU discharge. This is early recovery. So a comparative study of des versus sevo in obese patients, that this one is more recent in 2022, where they did titrate. And they titrated, um, the anesthesia was turned down, for um, gas was turned down to a, uh, to abyss of 60 or 70 in the last 15 minutes. And actually, there was no difference in, uh, in um, eye-opening extubation or orientation or in discharge, so early and late discharge criteria. SIVO, minimum flow anesthesia. So I'm sort of getting away from DES versus SIVO. And now what about SIVO? If you run it at two liters per minute, well, that means that it's really um, still, it, it's still significantly better than desflurane. However, we're, we're still running it at, a, at much higher total volumes. So there was a really nice meta-analysis in the CJA by Dr. Sonda Kopam, who was the um, former CAS uh, chair for the environmental section. And um, he showed that there was no impact on creatinine clearance or postoperative renal function. The concerns, of course, are with compound A and plasma fluoride. So um, there is another RCT more recently in 2021, and no difference again with, um, with uh, renal dysfunction. In fact, most of the world, they do not have a restriction on what your fresh gas flows need to be with sevoflurane. It's really only Canada and the states that do. And we are never going to get that change with Health Canada. There is no impetus for um, the manufacturers of sevoflurane to get the Health Canada um, product monograph changed. So really, it's up to us to look at the evidence and to... Um, use low flow. Thankfully, again, with the CAS guidelines, they recommended low or minimum flow. So I would suggest, and you may certainly may have already done this in your department, is to put your end tidal anesthesia to run it at 0.5 liters per minute as a default. The CAA revised guidelines, desflurane nitrous should be eliminated or minimized, and flows ideally one, uh, sorry, one liter per minute, ideally minimal flows of 0.5 where appropriate. Just going to show how much you can save. Um, this is at my hospital. We had a stepwise QI initiative starting in 2019 to decrease desflurane as well as to for responsible anesthetic gas use. We st um, started by discussing at rounds what our anesthetic gas impact was. As, and I would also talk personally with some of our colleagues that were um, heavy desflurane users. Um, and we really got most of our colleagues to stop using desflurane just by education. Then we decreased in um, 2021. Our, we programmed our fresh gas flows on entitled control. We have the GE ACES machines to 0.5 liters per minute. We completely eliminated desflurane from the operating room in February 2022. And this last year, it has been removed from formulary in our hospital. We are a very large community hospital in Mississauga. We have three sites. We are the only hospital for a city of 800,000 people. Um, so in 2018, baseline year, 826 tons of CO2 equivalent got down to 82 tons. We still had a little bit of desflurane. I didn't look at it yet this year, and this was 2022 to 2023. Um, and very importantly, we saved $125,000 per year because desflurane per patient is more expensive. So um, I want to speak about nitrous because where uh, 
Desflurane, uh, people I think are rapidly um, decreasing his use. Nitrous is something that's um, a little bit more difficult, does involve more stakeholders because really there is a facilities component um, to this. And so nitrous is the third most um, important greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. It is also the largest ozone destroying gas in the atmosphere, subject to the Montreal Protocol. But medical nitrous is not um, required to be regulated. Clinical use is, is, is felt to be about 1% to 3% of total human contribution to uh, nitrous in the atmosphere. So it's small, but not insignificant. The World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists has supported the avoidance of nitrous as a carrier gas. The Canadian Anesthesia Society does it well, and we just saw that in the guidelines as the ASA. So um, nitrous not really needed as a carrier gas for um, anesthesia, but of course nitrous is needed in other areas of the hospital, most notably in obstetrics. So I'll briefly discuss pipe nitrous distribution systems. This is a very hot topic in the last five years, particularly in the UK, and it's becoming um, a, quite an issue in Canada, especially with um, all the new redevelopments of the operating rooms. So pipe nitrous distribution systems, most hot, modern hospitals have nitrous that are coming out of the wall, just like all of our medical gases. There'll be a central um, bulk tank outside the hospital, are these large H cylinders or K cylinders that are stored in a central room. They're connected by manifolds and joints and they're piped between the walls to the point of use, so to our anesthetic machines or to the labor and delivery suite. This um, leakage rates were first confirmed in the UK about five years ago, and they are in the process of actually discontinuing all of these central pipe systems. The leakage rates are about 90 to 99%. So for every liter of nitrous that's used, 99% is already leaked out through these manifolds, joints, and bulk tanks. Quebec recently audited 26 hospitals and there were significant leakage rates in excess of 90% or higher in all of them from the centralized systems. So pipe nitrous is highly environmentally inefficient and financially wasteful. So this is a picture of my hospital. Um, and it's actually, we have an orthopedic center where we do very few GAs. Um, we mostly do regional anesthesia. And I'm not great with my iPhone, so there's only like six here, but there's actually 10 of these big 8K tanks. And each of these represents about one ton of nitrous, but we don't really use it. So all of this nitrous is just sitting there slowly leaking. And on the other side of the wall is actually where it's connected, where there's more leaks. Um, so it's 10 tons of CO2 equivalent that's just leaking. So we um, sort of looked at our stores data and 1,250 tons of CO2 equivalent is what our hospital uses of nitrous. And um, we use very little of it. We do have some people who's, who like to use it for, for pediatrics, for anesthesia, but we do use it in obstetrics and these are coming from wall units. So 20,000 a year is how much we procure. So we engage with our OB colleagues and they're more than happy to deliver nitrous off of e-cylinders and portable units. In fact, our Pronox wall units that are in every labor suite can easily be converted to portable units with an e-cylinder. So that's what we're going to do. In our orthopedic center where we don't actually have obstetrics, we just got rid of it completely and we did not adapt our anesthesia machines. So there is no nitrous in that hospital available. It's been three months. I've heard no complaints yet. We are also building a very large hospital right now. It is expected to be the largest um, hospital in Canada. It, um, it will be ready in seven years. And so along with the development team, I engage with them and we are not including any nitrous the, um, centralized systems. It will all be delivered at the point of care. This is supported by the Joint Commission in the States, by the AHQR and the NHS. And we are working now with the CSA to change the language um, about new builds and to try to suggest that 
pipe nitrous systems not be included in new builds. And if there are any new developments in um, Saskatchewan, I'm very happy to email and discuss how you can go about doing this. It really involves engaging your other clinical stakeholders. I am going to pass it off to Dr. Ho now, who's um, going to talk about waste management. Thanks, Melissa. So good morning, everyone. Um, thanks for having me here today. So moving on to the next uh, pillar of operating room sustainability, we're going to be talking about waste management. And I think whenever we think about waste management, we want to also think about the sort of how does waste, where does waste come from? It's often from our procurement choices. And we always also want to be thinking about the three R's. Um, so reduce, reuse, recycle, and we'll kind of go over each of those domains. So in terms of reduction strategies, there's a lot of different um, strategies out there in the perioperative realm. Anything from customizing the surgical trays to decrease the use of instruments and working with our supplies to decrease packaging. I think we've all seen with our Neuraxel kits, there's often those extra user pamphlets that exist in every single spinal kit, even though it's the same group of users. Somehow every single kit needs a user manual because we've never seen these kits before. Uh, reducing is, is, is often a challenge in the operating because we do need to work with our supply chain, but we also need to still consider patient safety and our clinical workflow because it doesn't make sense if we start hindering, you know, the quality of our care as well as making our work very, very inconvenient because they're not able to deliver the same volume of care to the patients knowing that the workloads are only increasing in time particularly to anesthesia that should be of high interest to us, uh, would be that of pharmaceutical waste. Um, everyone uses propofol. Everyone should be aware that propofol is um, a significant contaminant in the environment. Um, it can bioaccumulate. It is something that is um, very, very soluble in the soil, and it's effectively something that really needs to be incinerated to be disposed of properly. Uh, one of the issues, though, is that incineration is a very, very energetically expensive um, thing. And so one of the ideas that has come forward as people are trying to promote is the idea of pre-filled syringes. Um, Anesthesia departments often spend about 10 to 13% of hospital of, of the pharmacy budget. And back in residency, I graduated residency about eight years ago. And one of the hallmarks of being um, having a good setup was having all your emergency drugs prepared. And so I'm not saying don't have your emergency drugs available, but sometimes some of the more esoteric drugs or rarer used drugs like atropine, epinephrine, and lidocaine, or not lidocaine, but atropine and epinephrine, a lot of those are being wasted. Um, I think there was a, a study out there that shows that ephedrine alone results in about $50,000 of annual waste. And even altogether, taken altogether, there was a British study that showed that there's about 5,000 kilograms a year of wasted pharmaceutical drugs. So one of the other ideas with the pre-filled syringes that are commercially available is that not only do you hopefully reduce waste, so if you need only like 10% of an ampule, by having a pre-filled syringe that's commercially prepared, you're not only having something that is probably prepared under very, very stringent sterile guidelines, but also reducing your risk of drug wastage, something that is otherwise a clean package drug can be moved on to the next case if it was never opened. We do need best practice guidelines. Currently in Canada, unfortunately, there is no federal or provincial legislation that governs our pharmaceutical waste beyond the pharmaceutical department itself. So it is a little bit of a wild west right now. It is true that for our drugs, that the best practice is truly incineration to avoid contaminating our groundwater supplies, the soil, or having bioaccumulation up the food train. Um, and so everyone's probably familiar with the usual yellow biohazardous sharps containers, but also the blue and white pharmaceutical bins. Um, one of the issues is that every company that handles our pharmaceutical waste, they are also a business as well. And one of the things that we've seen is that the pharmaceutical waste bins have almost become a catch-all. So at, at my site, we have one vendor and they, they literally say, you don't need a yellow bin anymore. You just need the blue bin, put everything, put your sharps, put your vials, put your drugs, put everything in it. And while I understand the convenience is knowing how energetically expensive incineration is compared to autoclaving biohazardous materials and things like that, it's almost it, it's almost incorrect and almost like a profit motive to tell someone to put everything into that blue bin itself. Um, there's another anesthesiologist who's been doing this 
sustainability game for about over 10 years, he's been working to try to come up with best practice guidelines for pharmaceutical waste management. And so we're trying to mitigate this at this or work with work together at this point to try to, to come up with clear guidelines, even something that's having both yellow and pharmaceutical waste bins in our anesthesia space together, such that you can discard, discard the sharp to the yellow bin, decant the drugs to the pharmaceutical waste bin, and then this empty syringe itself and the empty vials themselves purely to the sharps or the, sorry, to the garbage. Um, we did a small audit at my site with Daniels just, and, and even they came back and said, you know, we don't need to see your empty drug vials in the sharps bin. If anyone's tried to ever tried to throw a vial on the ground, they're actually quite hard to break. I know there was a previous concern that anything glass could be could potentially become a sharp. Um, ideally, what would be best is to have a fully decanted uh, glass vials go into a recycling program of sort. But I know that they're quite challenging to um, organize. But I think the main thing is that to is is to ensure that purely only pharmaceutical waste goes into that pharmaceutical waste bin and not just, you know, debris that had previously touched drugs, but no longer contains drugs anymore. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, again, on the topic of supply chains being a huge part of the carbon footprint in the perioperative sphere. Um, whenever we think about supply chains, you know, we need to buy something, we buy a product, it gets delivered, we use it, we dispose of it, and then there's a subsequent waste and emissions. So this, this diagram up top is, is what we call a linear economy. And so I took a picture, I found this picture of an operating room, not too different from my operating room, but notice all the single-use items, single-use gowns, single-use OR table covers, armboard covers. And so the problem with the linear economy is that this really is perpetuated by single-use items. And the problem is that it requires resources and energy at every single stage to deliver that product to our hospital and to our operating room. So you can imagine if there's any problem anywhere upstream from our hospital, you will have a supply chain issue and everyone's favorite word of the pandemic, a back order of something. Ultimately, even though single-use things seem to be priced very, very low, overall on a per-use cost and overall annual basis, it is technically the most expensive form of procurement. And so a lot of people say, oh, but cleaning, cleaning things, cleaning reusable things is a huge problem. But I just wanted to point out that actually most of the life cycle emissions comes from the upstream part of the manufacturing stage and not actually in that cleaning and reprocessing stage. So even a single use item, it still needed to be processed to be clean and or sterile in the first place. So we just don't see it because it arrived to us sterile. So what if we turn this linear economy on itself and now we have what's called a circular economy? And I hope you can appreciate from this diagram that if there's energy required at every single stage, the smaller the loop, the more energy efficient that this would be. So there's different categories. So it's almost like taking the three R's and inserting it into this framework of the circular economy. So the reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, there's different levels in terms of efficiency, in terms of the carbon footprint and greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a good segue into talking about reusables and disposables, disposables. And so we've kind of alluded to this idea of life cycle assessments. Um, and when we think about a life cycle assessment, we really need to look at the entire from cradle to grave assessment of when a product is literally made from, from procuring the raw materials to making the product all the way from its use to its disposal. And so one of the, the flaws with single use and re disposable items is that vendors will often say, oh, but the, the life cycle analysis shows that there is a lot more energy because of the energy of processing uh, reusable equipment. But what they have often done is that they kind of truncated the upstream upstream manufacturing portion of that life cycle analysis. So one needs to be very, very skeptical um, in terms of who is presenting the data on a life cycle analysis. And there are um, neutral websites out there that actually try to show this. And um, I think for a long time, we were using reusable equipment and then there was a whole scare of Kreutzfeldt Jakob and there was a concern of whether or not processing would actually destroy these prions and whatnot. But um, I think it was a fear that was magnified by the industry. And I don't think there's that there, there isn't the evidence to show that Kreutzfeldt Jakob was being perpetuated through the use of reusable equipment. Um, and if anything, another problem is that life cycle assessments show that disposables have hidden risks. And so the materials that they use that are cheaper often lead to greater production of carcinogens and environmental contaminants. Um, 
I hope to prove to you that reusables ultimately will actually save money uh, in the long run. There may be a slightly greater upfront cost, um, but you'll have reduced waste haul disposal costs. And even when you include reprocessing costs, you'll still come out ahead from a financial perspective. So in our sphere of anesthesia, there's a whole realm of reusable equipment that's available to us. Um, at Northrop General Hospital, we're very, very fortunate that we've actually been able to employ a lot of reusable anesthesia equipment from our reusable breathing circuits, circuit face masks, um, as well as our reusable LMAs, as well as a, a lot of our airway adjuncts. And so just to prove one, one example, an airway adjunct that's reusable has a pretty steep upfront financial cost, like a $5,000 CMAC blade versus versus disposable blade, but if you actually preserve your reusables, you'll actually come out ahead. Um, and there's actually a proven 80% reduction, um, reductions in emissions with reusable equipment, and also a calculated reduced landfill contribution by over 90% with something like breathing circuits and circuit face masks and LMAs. So something with reusable versus disposable LMAs, um, there was a life cycle assessment comparing both the reusable and disposables. And you can actually see that pretty much across all domains, um, like global warming acidification and creating carcinogens, the disposable variant creates the most out of all of these or has the greatest contribution to these unwanted factors. Maybe the only one that is about similar is that of eutrophication, um, probably from the processing, um, uh, from the, the, the reprocessing stream. Um, and again, just to reiterate that disposable products also require processing in their own right. We just don't see it until because it happened before it hit our hospital. But otherwise, in all domains, it's a very, very drastic difference. In terms of a cost, um, again, very, very different financials, but a reusable LMA might be about $200, whereas a disposable LMA might be about $11 to $12 these days. Uh, but in a manufacturer, the one that we use suggests about 40 uses. But to be honest at our site, we, we have too many LMAs to actually try to count when they hit 40 uses. So we literally use them until um, there's actually an issue with performance or material integrity. And we've probably actually gotten ourselves up to 100 uses. And this has been borne out in the literature as well. And so if you do a cost analysis, if sterilization is about 250 per LMA and you're actually getting your 40 uses out of a $200 LMA, your per use cost is also significantly less than using one disposable LMA. And we haven't actually talked about the cost of disposing your LMA either. Another example, um, I might say we unfortunately got spoofed by our custom surgical packs. They actually brought in disposable face masks a couple of years ago without actually consulting with us about wanting reusable face masks. And so with our caseload, we were basically agreeing to throw out about 1,000 to 1,200 masks a month, which amounts to about 12,000 to 14,000 masks a year. And so if you weigh the masks out, including the packaging, we were basically signed on to throw out about 600 to 700 kilograms a year of just plastic landfill waste that cannot be recycled. And so a project of mine in the last year was to bring in reusable face masks. And when you do the math with how durable these masks are, which are guaranteed for 30 cleaning cycles, uh, we would be committing to maybe maximum 35 kilograms a year of landfill waste. And having had this initiative running for about nine months now. I was anticipating that we'd have to replace our fleet of masks about every season or so, but actually surprisingly or not surprisingly, because they're so durable, we haven't actually had to do that. So we are coming out even further ahead in terms of our original uh, waste disposal projections, as well as our financial progression pr projections for this. And so in a strategy for, use for reusables, we need to develop a culture change and normalize reusables, especially in other parts of the world. I was I was overseas at a conference and I was in the vendor exhibit area and I was asking those, where's your reusable equipment? And they were, the, the rep actually tried to use a usual spin of, well, we can't really be sure how clean these things are, but like, to be honest, for a product to be approved in Canada, they have to have the instructions for use guidelines written and the hospitals purely have to follow their guidelines and it should be deemed safe to use if it was Health Canada approved in the first place. Um, it's really important to engage clinicians in assessing the performance of reusable equipment. Um, we talk a lot about frontline engagement. I think it's things always go a lot easier when you have the buy-in at all levels. We've been very, very fortunate at North York General Hospital 
um, that we have a very robust system working with our central processing or MDRD department, our nursing staff, our team attendants, as well as our department of anesthesia and the nurses to ensure that our reusable equipment is actually being returned properly to MDRD for processing and then returned back into the operating room area for clinical circulation in a timely fashion and also avoiding inadvertent loss. Um, again, I just want to reemphasize that it's very important to have a full life cycle assessment to truly understand the costs and environmental impact. And we've already talked about the workflow of MDRD. We want to have a smooth workflow because we need to be able to continue delivering care in an efficient manner, as well as preserving our, our reusable equipment. And so this kind of brings us this concept of the triple bottom line. I think traditionally, whenever we look at hospital budgets, a lot of, well, clinical performance is a given. If something's clinically inadequate, it's not even up for consideration. But after something is deemed clinically acceptable, often the next major factor is that of cost. Uh, but I want to emphasize this idea of the triple bottom line, that the environmental impact should be just as important, if not more important, as a high-resource nation <laughs> in considering our purchasing and procurement decisions. And reason for being is that often when people look at some of the green initiatives, sometimes they do come at an increased financial cost, but the environmental impact or the environmental benefit far outweighs the slight increase in cost. And I hope that our procurement teams and procurement groups will see beyond just a dollar value and actually try to make the most responsible decision across the board for our patients as well as as well as the future, because even though you can save a few dollars today, if it costs us years and years and multiple degrees of global warming, then we've kind of lost the battle or lost the war of just trying to win one individual battle about a, a few dollars. And so this idea of a circular economy, we wanted to further emphasize. So with the Ontario Anesthesiologist Environmental Sustainability Working Group, I'm also one of those members as well. Um, a circular economy statement was written to try to promote the use of reusable equipment and understanding the harms of single-use items. And this is a statement that was written by multiple members of the working group and then endorsed by Ontario's anesthesiologists, which is a section of the Ontario Medical Association. There's nothing specifically Ontario about this. This is something that could be applied uh, across Canada, really. And so one of the questions that often comes up with reusable equipment is like, you know, what does the energy grid look like? And so especially, even more especially in the context of a clean energy grid, reusable uh, equipment makes sense. Something like Australia, where they are literally powered by coal-fired plants, unfortunately, their studies actually showed that single-use equipment was actually probably in their best interests. Uh, but in a country like Canada, not, I, I'm aware that not every province has fully clean energy, but I think having that reusable infrastructure in place is not a bad idea because we expect that the energy grids will gradually become cleaner and cleaner over time. So there are lots of other targets to reduce and reuse in our operating room. Something like as, as simple as a plastic kidney basin. So there's nothing magical about a kidney basin needing to be changed necessarily. And and there's often once upon a time there were there were there's sterile metal, or not sterile, but there was metal kidney basins that could be just cleaned instead of being something being thrown to landfill or something like uh, bronchoscopes. There's a lot of um single-use bronchoscopes coming out on the market, but really there are still, there's still value and merit in choosing the reusable bronchoscope that can then be processed, reprocessed safely by following the manufacturer guidelines. Blue wrap is another huge uh, target for reduction. Blue wrap, unfortunately, is made out of probably propylene, which is not available for recycling. And so there's a huge push to advocate for hard cases that can be actually processed and sterilized instead. And therefore we'd be reducing a huge landfill contribution as well as avoiding that, that very, very toxic manufacturing process of probably propylene itself. A word about recycling. Um, I know that when people first talk about environmental sustainability, people say, okay, we need to recycle. And it, it's not wrong, but just sort of talking about the life cycle assessments and recognizing how much of the carbon footprint occurs upstream. Recycling is, it, again, it shouldn't be fully discounted, but it's it's not the only solution. And it shouldn't be the way to absolve our procurement sources just because we say that we're going to recycle something. 
there are a lot of manufacturers out there that when you ask them for their sustainability report, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors because they're talking about bioplastics and a recycling program. But to be honest, in our province, we can't recycle a lot of these single-use plastic products because it's not accepted. And no manufacturer has come up with a robust, efficient program to go around collecting all of these things to actually recycle it itself. So it's not to say don't recycle, but a lot of focus should be focused on the upstream parts of the supply chain and not just trying to look at just recycling itself. So on the topic of plastic itself, it's true. A lot of plastic waste is truly recyclable. And so if we can close the loops, we could actually match, or we can maximize a product's life cycle. And there are actually some programs out there that do this. And knowing that 48% of our anesthesia waste is plastic, there's an interesting program out there called PVC123. I know that they're having a bit of a rejigging thing right now, but they can take a lot of um, IV bags, oxygen face masks and things and actually not necessarily process them into health related products, but they can, PVC is used in many, many other industrial products as well. There's also an interesting program called Striker Sustainability. So they've kind of got a few different arms of their program. And so their idea is that they can take a lot of different single-use items that would have gone into the garbage or sharps bins, but they actually take them and they either reprocess them or remanufacture them. And then they sell them back as their own generic label with their own, manuf with their own uh, warranty and Health Canada approval. So something like... Um, SCD, uh, the sequential uh, compression device sleeves, instead of throwing them to the garbage, they go into a special bin that they collect and then they reprocess these SCDs and they sell back a generic SCD that costs a fraction of what a brand new brand name SCD would cost. Um, there's also our surgical arm, you know, things like energy devices, ligatures, ultrasonic scalpels, and, and myoshers. Um, they would actually take these in a special green bin, and they, they're not just autoclaving these products and, and selling them back. They're actually taking them apart, new blades, new wires, and everything. But they literally take the plastic handles and other things and rebuild a brand new part, uh, brand new ligature and, and, or, or ultrasonic scalpel, and they sell it back under their own banner at a fraction of a cost of what a brand new... Um, brand name part would actually cost instead. And so this is an example of where reprocessing can actually extend the life cycle of a brand new manufactured product. So we've talked about pharmaceutical waste. We've also alluded to uh, biomedical waste as well. And so, as we said, as I said earlier, biomedical waste is autoclave and landfilled, or or it has to be incinerated. But it is a very, very energetically intensive uh, process, much, much more than just a usual black bag general waste. So accurate, accurate segregation is very, very important, not only to control costs, but also to ensure that the energy is being placed in the right place uh, to to dispose of the correct waste. So again, putting pharmaceutical waste into a biohazardous bin, again, doesn't make sense because it doesn't perfectly, it doesn't fully destroy the drug itself, but also incinerating things that only need to be autoclaved is also energetically expensive in its own place. So there should be an emphasis in trying to educate the staff and come up with policies to ensure that these different types of waste streams are being used appropriately to not only conserve money, but also energy at the same time. So just as a quick summary between um, Anita and myself, we've talked about uh, the, uh, the, the, the fact that anesthesiologists, unfortunately, are disproportionate emitters of greenhouse gases, and we're also producers of waste in the health system. We won't be able to make it go away, but we can be more conscious about our daily actions and choices to try to mitigate our impact on the environment. There are practice guidelines that have addressed this kind of obligation to try to decarbonize a profession, and this is coming out in many, many jurisdictions. There's anything from easy wins, such as removing desflurane, eliminating nitrous oxide, and also considering our procurement, and, and more complex things, such as considering our procurement choices, and then working on things that are very impactful, such as waste reduction and segregating our waste appropriately. And these are things that should be made a priority across all health centers. So I'm going to turn this back to Anita to move on to the next section. We've talked a lot of um, ideas and things that could be done, but how exactly do we kind of put things into motion? Okay. So um, I think we're running out of time. So I just want to give a couple of quick uh, resources. And one of them is the Cascades Initiative. Do you want to um, move the slide? So uh, we can go to the next one, Melissa. So CASCADES, um, it's an acronym, it's not perfect, but it's creating a sustainable Canadian health system in a climate crisis. It is a, 
uh, community engagement um, sort of initiative uh, that has uh, several hubs, Dalhousie, UT, UBC, and the Canadian Coalition of Green Healthcare. They have $6 million of funding. One of their main pillars to try and green Canadian health systems is perioperative care. Um, next slide, please. Uh, on their website, they have something called the Cascades Sustainable Perioperative Care Playbook, and it has everything you want to know about multiple green implementations, how to do it in your center, starting with what is the case for it in terms of carbon emissions and cost, how to engage leadership, how to do point-by-point uh, point, sort of in a QI framework, how to get data, and um, how to maintain the initiative once it's been started. Uh, next slide, please, Melissa. And um, uh, so it looks like this. It's on the website, um, which is Cascades Canada, I think, .org. It, it's easily Googleable, and we can send you that link. Next um, slide. And just to give you um, sort of what the opportunities for change are, they have avoid unnecessary care, which is really uh, choosing wisely. And there, there's three major parts in the playbook, minimizing direct emissions, substitute reusable alternatives, and reduce and manage waste. So we've sort of touched on all of those. Next uh, slide, please. And they have project charters, which can just be copied and pasted as long along with videos of how other people have done um, these implementations. Uh, next slide. And for example, reduce nitro nitrous oxide wastage. So there's a video, there's project charters that you can give to your facilities and to your leadership, and there's other implementation resources. Next slide. And uh, she talks about clinical workflow. We'll go through all of these quickly. I think we're running out of time. So uh, measure and test. So these are some of the outcomes. And next one. Um, there is something called the Sustainable OR Scorecard within Cascades, and we would love your feedback on that. We can send the copy to Henry. It is a um, point scorecard with uh, things like leadership, low value care. And this is something you can actually present to your leadership to get buy-in and resources. Um, and so some of the important implementations here, they have very... Uh, uh, strict targets for red, green, and um, yellow. And they also link to the playbook, each one of them, so you can just click on it and get the project charter. You've been listening to Airway Breathing Conversation, a podcast hosted and presented by the anesthesiology residents at the University of Saskatchewan. Please note that while this podcast is run by healthcare professionals, it is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. We are very thankful to our guests for taking the time to share their wisdom with us this episode, and a very special thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us and our associated USASC Anesthesia accounts on social media. You can find all our social media links on our Linktree page at linktr.ee slash abc underscore podcast. You can also find the department's social media links on their Linktree page at linktr.ee slash usask underscore anesthesia. We'll see you next episode, but until then, stay calm, take a breath, and always remember your ABCs.